This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water podcast. I am your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And this week, Sam and I are continuing with our series, Desiring the Kingdom, which is a series of podcasts that parallel the messages being preached right now at Rio Vista Community Church. And Sam's working from home today. So once again, we're doing the uh, roving Sam bit uh, because <laughs> we've had a little bit of COVID running around the church the last uh, the last week or so. And so everybody's hunkered down again. Are you, are you feeling fully hunkered today, Samuel? I- I'm very hunkered. I'm very hunkered. Very, we- very hunkered. The nation, I was talking with somebody about this this morning, as the nation's COVID numbers are plummeting, it sounds like, Rio finally decided to get serious about passing this thing around. It's crazy. I mean, we've, <laughs> in all seriousness, we've gone through uh, a year of this thing now with no more than, I mean, we've had a staff member here or there, but really not mm-hmm. much. And now all of a sudden yeah. we've got three or four that we are pretty sure have it and some others we're not sure about. And it's just all of a sudden it's this big wave. Um, so, yeah. you know, obviously we're praying for everybody to, to make a good recovery. Uh, it's not, it's not affecting any of our older folks yet so far. Um, so that's good. And I'm keeping my distance from everybody. So <laughs> hopefully I won't be one of the, uh, you know, one of the ones on the casualty list, but, um, <laughs> First Kings chapter eight, which is where we're coming today, uh, it begins, Sam, with the uh, the ark being brought into the temple, and I just wanted to let people know that it's not we're like we're going to be ignoring that. We talked a lot about the ark at length last week, so if there's something that you'd like to to hear us talk about with respect to the ark, let me just say, go back and get last week's episode because really we spent a long time, very detailed conversations about the Ark. And this week, we're really not going to spend a lot of time on the Ark at all, other than to acknowledge that the chapter begins with the Ark being brought into the temple. But really what we're going to talk about today is the dedication of the temple. Well, you, you said we're not going to spend long on on the Ark or, or that part, but there is something that's really fascinating, and I think it's very intentional. Um, so, so I do want to talk about this really briefly. Sure. Um, when when we are in First Kings chapter seven, if you go all the way back up to verse thirteen, there's language that's used here, and it says, "And King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was the son of the widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre. And listen to the way it describes him. It says he's a worker in bronze. He was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze." He came to Solomon and did all of his work. And so there's some language that's being used here um, that's, that's meant to draw your mind, I think, all the way back to the construction of the tabernacle, which is very similar. So in those days it said, Moses says, See, the Lord has called by name a different guy, not Hiram, but Bezalel, the son of Uri, of the tribe of Judah. And then it's all the same descriptors. He has filled him with the Spirit of God and wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all sorts of craftsmanship to make designs for working in gold and silver and bronze and in the cutting of stones for settings and the carving of wood to perform every inventive work. Um, 
And so in both of these cases, you have a wise master craftsman. In both cases, they're skilled at dealing with fabrics, and it gives this long explanation. They, they work with gold and silver and stones. This is also in Second Chronicles 2. And then in both of these cases, when you get to the end, when they, when they finish the construction of the actual building or the tabernacle, we're given the specific language. So, for, the, for example, at the end of Exodus in chapter 40, uh, when Moses finishes the tabernacle, it says, Thus Moses finished the work, and then the glory of God, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But it's very intent. The Lord Moses finished the work, mm-hmm. and then the glory of God filled the tabernacle. And at the end of First Kings chapter 7, so as we're hopping into chapter 8, um, the, the last line there in, in verse 51 of chapter 7 is, Thus, all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. Mm-hmm. And so he finishes the work, they bring the ark in, and what happens? The glory of God comes and fills the Holy of Holies. And there's something that, that the Apostle Paul is intending when he's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is where he... The Apostle Paul says, hey, do you not know that you are the temple of God? The way that he leads into that discussion is very intentional, and it goes like this. In verse 10, he says, okay, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. So Paul is talking about his ministry, and he's like, hey, remember Uri and those guys, you know, who are filled with wisdom and skill and dealing with all the stuff and how to build a temple. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, I'm a skilled master builder, and I've laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. And listen to what he says. He says, let each one take care of how he builds on it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will be manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as one through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and God's Spirit dwells in you? Mm-hmm. And so... So the tabernacle, you get a skilled master craftsman who builds the tent. He finishes the work. The word, the Ark of the Covenant, goes into the tabernacle, and then God's glory fills it. Then you get to the temple, and you have Solomon with Hiram, who hires this guy who's a skilled master craftsman with all these different resources. They finish the work, and the finished temple is going to sit there for 11 months before they have this, the dedication ceremony. And the reason for that is it's kind of interesting Solomon is wanting to make sure that when they celebrate this thing in the seventh month on the Hebrew calendar, this is the month where you have all kinds of really important holidays, like Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. You have mm-hmm. Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And then you have a Feast of Booths, which is the feast where you celebrated everybody living in little tents or tabernacles as they were doing the Exodus. And so that's the context of when. Solomon is going to be offering up this dedication prayer. The mm-hmm. feast is going on. They've just come through all this stuff. But when you get to the New Testament, the language that is communicated makes you think God and the gospel is on a mission of temple building. And so 
what is the, when is the temple completed, right? Jesus says, destroy this body, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. So right. Jesus constructs the temple. He finishes the work on the cross. What does he say? It, it is finished. Mm-hmm. And so the work is finished. Now, if you're following the tabernacle and temple building diet paradigm, all that's left is for the word to be put into the heart of the temple, and then God's glory will come. And so at Pentecost, what happens? You have Peter, the apostle, who comes and preaches a sermon. The word of God, they, it says they received it and like with deep sincerity. And then what happens? The spirit of God comes upon them and dwells in them. It's telling you this is a repetition of what we're going through in First Kings here with this temple. It's happening to us now as people. As temples, the spirit of God is coming to dwell in us now because our temples have been completed Hmm. Um, by the word made flesh who died on a cross to make us holy enough to bear the spirit and the word of God that we read and and plant in our hearts of flesh. Now the spirit of God comes and dwells in us just like the spirit of God came to dwell in the tabernacle, then the temple, and now in us. Hmm. And it's very intentional language that's going on here that Paul picks up on and says, hey, 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 I'm that master craftsman. I'm building up the church, and now the Spirit of God is coming in. Mm. And if you're building with the stuff that God tells you to, which is, you know, if you're making, if your temple is honoring to the Lord and you're building with the right stuff, all of the ways that you're living your life are going to go on to receive a reward. But if you're on the foundation and you're living for the world, everything you're doing here is going to be burnt up. It's going to be for nothing. Um, that reminds me of the old saying John Piper used to have a thing on his refrigerator growing up, a magnet, and it said, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what First Corinthians 3 is getting at. If you build your life for the kingdom, everything that you're doing has eternal consequence and significance and reward. But if not, it's all burnt up and wasted. You know, one of the other things that uh, I've always liked about that passage in 1 Corinthians 3 is that the three things that he names that are not burnt up, gold, silver, precious stones, are things that are purified and made even more valuable by the fire. It's like when the when the fire comes upon them, the things that are temporary, the wood, the hay, the straw, whatever, they're, they're burnt up, they're gone, but the things that are permanent are made better. Um, That's awesome. I've always looked at that because I've always seen that statement as, you know, there's there's a point where we're going to have to give an an accounting. A ju- it's judgment. You know, it's like think what, what we've done is going to be looked at and it's going to be judged. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, the one of the best parts about that is that no matter how lumpy my piece of coal is, that when it's presented <laughs> to the king at that time of judgment, he his judging of it will turn it into a diamond. He, you know, yeah. if if my if my blob of gold has a bunch of dirt and stones and sticks poking out of it, he's the one that's going to be refining it. It's the <laughs> refiner's fire, you know. Mm-hmm. And when he's done receiving it and judging it and looking at it, it will be perfect. And mm-hmm. that's just a comfort to me because a lot of times I look at that and say, man, you know. <laughs> I don't know that I'm so good at working with the gold, the silver, the precious stones. You know, I was like, I don't know how good a job I can do of this stuff. I'm not exactly the master jeweler, but I think it's reassuring, you know. Um, yeah. And I also like the I also like the image 
at the end, too, where it says, hey, you know what? If everything's burned up, that person's going to suffer loss. You know, they're going to, there's going to be a loss, but they themselves he will himself, make it through. Yeah. You know, he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Which and so, yeah. I mean, how are you saved through fire? You. It's like if, if you're lucky with just the clothes on your back and maybe not even then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I mean, that just I mean, it's not it's not declaring a work salvation. It's nope. certainly not doing that. Nope. But it's saying like your in some sense, your reward is determined by how you you live this life. So right. there I used to always wonder that when I first came to faith and people were like, you know, you're saved through Jesus and what you do doesn't matter. And that was kind of like a lot of the preaching that I would hear. And I'd be like, so when it says, you know, that we're all going to stand before God and give an account, what does it matter then? Right. <laughs> you know, like, well, you, you're you not, you're spared from the penalty of sin. But the way that you live this life, you know, determines what you do in this life, whether it goes on to receive eternal reward or whether it's just gone and lost. It's an interesting way to see that as a Christian. Mm-hmm. Well, and and some of the things that you read in Revelation and um you know, they talk about crowns being cast at his feet, you know, mm-hmm. and I like to think that to me that's always been sort of a picture of you know, when you when you get there, if God says, "Sam, you know, here's your crown, man. You earned this one." Mm-hmm. We're going to be wise enough to say, "No." <laughs> no, you know, maybe I get the crown, but let's talk about who it was that earned the crown, really, yeah. and that we put it at his feet. Because ultimately, yeah. and that's the that's why I like the picture of this with the gold, silver, precious stones being refined by the fire. Is that you know, it, w- when we look at it, we're like, oh God, I don't even want to try. I'm going to make such a big mess of it. I'm like, no, that's not the point. God can make perfect. Even the things that we do imperfectly, um, you know, what he requires is that we're faithful. That's mm-hmm. what he requires. That's what he tells us elsewhere. He's like, you know what's required in stewards? It's not that he's brilliant. It's that he's bound, found faithful. Mm-hmm. So, I um, mean, yeah, I just I, there's a lot about that that's that's reassuring to me. Some people find any mention of, of judgment as being uncomfortable. And I'm like, no, oh, just there's not when you look at it from the standpoint of, what is God doing here? You know, he's stripping away everything that doesn't matter. And if there's nothing left but you, he still takes you. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's, it is. And it's a, it should be an encouragement, not, you know, a warning, yes. Like, we always used to joke about the fact that uh, that when it was my turn, there was going to be a really big bonfire. And that was always at our youth group, you know, back many years ago. They're like, yeah, Mark, I want to be there when you get judged. I'm like, yeah, it's going to be a big fire. You know. Lots of things going to get burned up, you know, that kind of thing. I got it. Um, but you know, it's, it's there's, I always find that kind of an encouraging thing. I mm-hmm. felt like it was a, it was a statement that, uh, that God will perfect even our, even the things that we don't do perfectly, God will perfect. But, mm-hmm. and, and the thing about this that I, that I love, and it's, it takes such an exalted view of the Word of God is Solomon finishes building this temple and this thing, because he finishes it in the eighth month, and then the dedication is at the seventh month, which means he's sat around waiting 11 months. This temple has been of no value or no purpose for 11 months. The stones, the beauty, the gold, all the stuff has done nothing for 11 months. But when the word of God gets implanted in the temple, then the glory of God comes and Mm -hmm. dwells there. Mm -hmm. And so personalize that. What does that mean for us? That means that we can do all the right things. We can, you know, be super mechanical about, you know, 
being nice and whatever. But it's the when the word of God comes and dwells in us richly, that's when the glory of God shows up in our lives. Mm-hmm. That's the pattern that's being emphasized here in the story of the tabernacle, the story of the temple, and then the story of, of Pentecost. Um, it's really, really wonderful. I think that it's, uh, you know, it's interesting that uh, when the glory of the Lord comes down to the temple, that it says that a cloud filled the house of the Lord there in verse 10, when the priests came out of the most of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. You know, it's, it's interesting to me because, um, the Lord has used this, you know, he's appeared with this sort of cloud thing before, and there's a sense in which people are like, well, that's, why a cloud? You know, why would he appear in a cloud? And what I've always felt like was that, in a way, it was God sort of protecting us, that, you know, I believe that if that if we, in our fallen human condition, were to be able to, to see, really see the true glory of God, mm-hmm. that it would just like, we would explode. Yeah. <laughs> and so when the Lord kind of makes an appearance and shrouds himself with the cloud, mm-hmm. I've always felt like he was doing that to protect the people. To say, I'm here, you know I'm here, here's the cloud, but I'm going to shield you from my full <laughs> glory because you couldn't handle it. Yeah, I mean, he says, remember when Moses is on Mount Sinai, he's, he's saying, hey, let me see your face. And God's like, no, nah, you don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he says, no man may see my face and live. Yeah. Um, you know, and so one of the things, when you get to Revelation, and it's talking about the restoration of all things, and, and when he is going to be intimately with us, you know, we'll we'll see his face and live and be delighted. And mm-hmm. he will see our face. You know, what? The, the word revelation or apocalypse literally means unveiling. Mm-hmm. And so it's you get to see God for all he is, and he gets to see you without a covering. You know, it's, it's you're fully known, totally naked in every sense of that word before one another. But because of Christ, that's possible. Apart from Christ, no one can see my face and live. Mm. So, yeah. So, so then Solomon moves on to the dedication part here where he's going to dedicate this temple. And there's a pattern that crops up here that I mentioned last week. And, and it begins right here in verses 12 and 13 where after this happens, where the, where the Lord fills the temple with his glory, with his cloud, uh, verse 12 of First Kings chapter 8, it says, Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness, I I, Solomon, have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. That's going to be a pattern that repeats here through chapter 8, where Solomon again and again and again and again and again is going to, almost like he's reminding the Lord, I have built this house for your name. I have built a house for you to live in. I have built a, a thing. And it's like, at some point, it, mental image now, this is just me, I, I kind of, I'm sort of imagine God going, yes, I know, you built, yes, you built it, Solomon. I understand, you know, that kind of thing. It's like he's, he's like he's coming back to it over and over again. But that really jumped out to me that that's something that's going to continue, that Solomon mm-hmm. is going to keep referring to this as the house that I have built for your name, for your mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah, that's another one of those flutes, yeah. which, as you said, are, are taking over the whole horn section. Just about <laughs> at this point. You know, it's like out of key. It's So he's in this prayer of dedication and his benediction and his opening prayer. It's like he says all the right things. He This, this is a beautiful prayer. It's a prophetic prayer in some senses because he's anticipating 
all of the things that are going to befall the people of Israel in advance. I mean, it's it's a recognition that we're not going to be able to to withstand this. We need you. We need you. But at the same time, out of the other side of his mouth, he's like, hey, remember what I did for you? I did this. I built this. Yeah. Uh, it is. So like Until you mentioned it, I hadn't noticed it. But if you read this passage, it's like, there it is again. There it is there, again. There keeps, it is again. Keeps coming up. <laughs> Keeps coming up. I mean, when we jump down to verse 20, uh, he starts, he, he starts here rather in 12 and 13. He says, I built for you the exalted house. And then he goes around and he, he, it's the call to worship, basically. <laughs> you know, he turns around and he blesses the assembly of his, of all Israel and all the assembly of Israel stood. Remember, folks, if the pastor doesn't make you stand for the long prayer, he's being kind to you. Just, just saying. So everybody stood, and then he said, "You know, blessed be the God, the the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth <laughs> to David, my father." And he talks about the the promise that God made that his son, that David's son, would build him this temple. And then when we get down to verse twenty, this is what Solomon says: "He goes, now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have." risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord has as the Lord promised and I have built the house for the name of the Lord the God of Israel and there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt it just it Sam is just like jumping out at me again and again and again that you know that sol- that this is really just all about I feel like he waited seven months to make sure he was going to have the largest possible audience for him to stand up and tell everybody in this giant humble brag, basically, <laughs> you know, telling them with all this sort of false humility about how he built this temple. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine like we because it's scripture, we tend to just kind of read through it and go, OK, that's Solomon. You know, he's a big fake. But I'm trying to imagine if like at the dedication of the Ingram Center, which is quite a quite a jump. Right. Right. If if Tom had gotten up and delivered these remarks, like I think everybody would have left there going, "How pompous!" <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I did this. I'm the one who did the fundraising, and I'm the one who did. You know, and I'm the I. And, and it's like when you read it through those lens and imagine yourself being there, and here you have the glory of God who's just filled the temple. Like pretty much, who cares what you did, Solomon? Do you realize what's going right. on behind you? Um, and he's like, "I'm the one who's responsible for him being able to come down here." I look at you know it really is it's it is the ultimate humble brag and and think about the fact that first of all it's just wrong because Solomon all Solomon did was snap his fingers and say would you all build a temple please <laughs> what did he do okay we just had chap- several chapters of where he got the raw materials from someone else you just got done saying he called Hiram down and said do all this work it's like he you know basically what and we know about the forced the forced laborers and everything else. Solomon, yes, he gave the orders. He signed the executive orders. He was at the desk and he signed the piece of paper, but everybody else made, made it happen. So, and I don't know, I guess to some extent, I feel like, um, which I, we were talking about this before we turned the mics on. I was talking about the conversation I'd had with my wife, uh, just last night or 
last night or night before, lots of dinnertime conversations during COVID. <laughs> as we're right. as we're going through this, we eat dinner at the table every night. It's like we're never we're it's just always the two of us, and so I'm always rattling on about whatever it is I've been studying for work. And I said, you know, as I study more about Solomon and I look at David, I'm like, you know, David messed up. You know, he he would do things wrong on a regular basis, but I never felt like David's heart was anywhere but with the Lord. I felt like that was the big thing with David is that even when he did the most terrible of things, the thing with Bathsheba and getting Uriah killed and everything else, even through that, you get the, there's little things that just make you feel like his heart is still for God. His heart is still with God. It's like he immediately collapses when confronted by Nathan. He doesn't offer any justification. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't say anything. He just, it's like he's, he's absolutely crushed. So his heart is with God the whole time. And I don't get that feeling about Solomon, Sam. I get the feeling that Solomon is a guy who's looks great on the outside, says the right things. And we know that he's vastly wise and vastly intelligent and everything else. But I feel like with his heart, he's playing games. Yeah. You know, and you had to get that. You kind of have to to jump into Ecclesiastes before you start seeing the emotional intensity of where he's at, mm-hmm. um, or or the Song of Solomon. Um, but in this narrative, like, like it's like I said, you know, it's just the Lord on one end is just blessing his socks off, and you know, I'm going to let you build the temple, and I'm going to give you all this wealth, and I'm going to give you favor to grow the kingdom, and I'm going to give and give and give and give and give, and then you get all these hints on the other side. That the more the Lord gives, the more corrupted Solomon becomes. Mm-hmm. And there's, I, I think there's, that's intentional. I really believe that's intentional because that's generally the way that it works. My, I, when, when I'm in calamity, when I'm in the middle of, of a real crisis in life, you know, I will, I will chase after the Lord. You know, it, it draws me near. I need him. But the moment that, that blessing starts or, you know, the ministry is exploding or, you know, things are going really, really well and all the numbers look good, you know, I can become really proud about that and think, look what I have accomplished. Um, and not even in, in even not if it's not even necessarily in an arrogant sense. It's not no. as though you're going to be saying, God, I don't need you anymore. It's just you don't think about it. Mm-mm. It's like everything's going well, Lord. I, I got it from here. And I, that's what I really kind of get from Solomon because as we've talked about this already is that under Solomon, that was the greatest and most profitable and peaceful expansion of the nation ever. I mean, by every measurable metric, God was yeah. blessing Israel off the charts. They, they were at peace. Their borders were expanding. Everybody was, was comfortable and wealthy and doing well. It was incredible. Yeah. yeah I had a, a real life experience. This is a, a little bit of a Sam story here. Um, but if you went back when I first was approached, this is going back almost a decade now, and you know I'd gone to Israel with Tom on a trip, and during that time he asked me to come and you know intern at Rio, and and I did, and so I taught a few things, and then he asked me to go to lunch one day, and I remember it was him and Pastor Matt and Doctor Gage, and they they were looking across the table from me, and they said we want you to be the headmaster. I had no experience. At that at all. I had no, <laughs> no business being a headmaster. Let's be clear. You were a teacher. I was a teacher you before You were a teacher. Right, and it, right, wasn't, right. it wasn't like they hired you out of working at Subway making sandwiches. And, okay. You, had, you I, were an educator at least. I, I was a Bible teacher. Okay. And, and like, but all the curriculum and running an institution administrator, all that stuff, I was learning on the fly. And I was thinking, 
oh my goodness, like <laughs> this is, the, and I went into that job thinking I'm totally inadequate for this, God, you have to help me. And because the expectations were so low, to be honest, <laughs> everything was a delight. Like God just exceeded expectation after expectation after expectation, and it was fun. It was like, this can't be me. Like it just felt anointed, and it was delightful. And after a year of that, then record enrollment and record finances and record test scores and you know, going into year three, all of a sudden, all of that success became slavery. It was the most bizarre thing in the world, but I began to hate my job because it was going so well. And I'll explain what I mean by that is all of a sudden, everybody was like, Sam, so great what you've done with the school. Sam, Sam, look what you've done. Look at the numbers. Look at this. Look at that. And then anything that even dared come close to threatening any of it, you know, if a parent would complain about something, if if I thought, oh my goodness, our test scores might not be so good here or our numbers might not be so good there, it would send me into a panic because my identity had now been formed about whether or not this was going to be successful. And it's like, you know, you sense Solomon at his youth going, God, I'm but a little child. <laughs> you know, I yeah. need your help. I can't do this. That's the best place he could have been, and he should have stayed there. Mm -hmm. Because the moment he said, look at me, I'm king, and I can handle this, and I got this from here, God, I can relate to that on a much smaller scale, and it was debilitating. Mm -hmm. It was gross. All of a sudden, you lose the joy of it. You have to protect everything. You've got to do everything in your own strength to, to keep the image going and we do that as humans. Mm. It's like the more God blesses, the more we think, I've got to protect it. I've got to protect it. It's mine to protect. You know, I didn't create it. It's not mine to protect. <laughs> you know? no. But we're, we're proud and arrogant enough to think this is the work of my hands. Well, and I remember that time. You know, I, yes. I remember well when you came and took the job at Headmaster, Ed. Uh, I remember you and I talking about things back then. And, and your determination was to be a pastor to the staff and to the families of the, of the school. It's like, you really weren't sure what else you were going to do, but you knew that you were going to be a pastor to them. And that's really what transformed the school and the whole culture around the school. And, um, and I think, I, I think there's a parallel there too, because that was Solomon's desire was to be wise so that he could rule these people well. And uh, that was your desire coming in the doors that you wanted to pastor these, these families and this staff well. And you did. And they responded to that. Um, and, and the you know, closer a, they got to Jesus, the better things got. Yeah. There was a lot, but there was, there actually are a lot of parallels. It's certainly not the same scale. You're right. But there, <laughs> there are a lot of parallels to that. And I think there are with, anything that that we undertake which is you know when we get started on something we feel unsure of ourselves we feel like we've got to lean on the people that are around us and if we're if we're doing something you know for the lord we're certainly leaning on him and 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 man when that becomes when mm -hmm. it becomes just the ordinary the way things are supposed to be that's when you have to really guard your heart um, yeah and Solomon didn't do the best job of that. <laughs> no. So Solomon moves on to the prayer of dedication and um, it's a long prayer. And as, as you said, and I didn't really, it's kind of funny. I didn't look at it this way. Uh, when I looked at it first, it, it, it looked like, you know, cause I studied this and, and wrote about it in our personal worship from two, uh, I guess two weeks ago now. Um, 
And I said it was like Solomon was checking boxes. Okay, Lord, you know, if we do this, then we need you to do that. (laughs) And if we do this over here, then we need you to do that. And he was just trying to cover all the bases of the ways that he thought Israel might mess up. And he wanted to make sure that he had told God about what, you know, God, please, you got to hear. You got to do what we say. You got to hear that sort of thing. And then you mentioned that it was a prophetic prayer. Like, like it was in some sense a very prophetic. What do you mean when you say that it's a prophetic prayer? Like these things came to pass, right? Yeah. So if, if you're looking at Solomon's prayer of dedication, which starts in verse 22, and you just kind of look at the different paragraphs, like, um, like jump down to verse 33, and then just look at each new paragraph. It'll say, when your people Israel are defeated. Well, that's going to happen. Yes. You know, <laughs> before the enemy, it, because they sinned against you. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. When when heaven is shut up and there's no rain because they have sinned against you, that's going to happen. When there's famine in the land and pestilence and blight and mildew and locust and caterpillar, if their enemy besieges besieges them and the land at their gates, whatever plague of sickness, all this stuff is going to happen to a nation. I mean, and it's you don't have to be a crazy prophet to predict that, right? Mm-hmm. That happens pretty much to, to all countries. You know, they go to war. They face famines. We're in the middle of a pandemic right now. You know, famines, food shortages. He's going through like this. These are the conditions that befall nations. And when that happens, Lord, please do not turn away from us. Hear us. Hear our cry of repentance and turn back to us. Um and that's, I mean, he's going to go through just basically everything that's going to come against Israel. But the one thing they can't come back from is the Lord leaving, departing. Um, everything else, you know, this is a checklist. Like if you think of Jerusalem, they go through all of this. The one thing that Jerusalem, um, when they finally get conquered and Jerusalem gets destroyed, it's not because of a famine. It's not because of an army, though God will use an army to do that. It's because his glory, and Ezekiel, we're told, his glory just says, okay, I've seen that you have so hardened your hearts against me, and you're persisting in all of this evil, and so now I am. my glory is going to depart from the temple. Glory picks up out of the temple, goes over the Mount of Olives, departs, and then they, the Babylonians come, destroy the temple, burn the city down, take everyone away into exile, and what Solomon and his wisdom is getting at, hey, we can get past sieges. We can get past famines. We can mm-hmm. get past plagues. We can get past all of this. We cannot get past a future where you abandon us. So please turn and forgive us constantly. Hmm. So in that sense, you know, it, it's, you know, we talked about how sometimes you, you get the sense that he's almost like a celebrity pastor. He's saying all the right stuff. He is. You know, like this prayer, I could, uh, amen, amen, (laughs) this whole thing. That's Um, true. But then it's like, you know, you see the pride, you see these things, you know, welling up in Solomon, and you're like, no, 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 Solomon, like, be weak, be weak in the Lord's sight, go back to that humility where you're just a little child, and you need God's help, and you can't do it all alone. Um, But then when he gets up and and gives a prayer, you're like, yep, amen, Mm -hmm. amen to that. It is something, though, you know, it may not be a direct um, correlation to everything that we that we talk about, the dangers of the celebrity pastor or the celebrity Christian leader. Um, but there's a lot of there's an awful lot of parallels. I mean, they, there's mm-hmm. everything appears to be going very well. He's saying all the right things. The Lord mm-hmm. appears to be blessing 
the ministry enormously. You know, it's like we, or in this case, the nation. It's like there's every kind of, of again, by every measurable metric, this was Israel was being blessed by God off the scales. And yet the real problem was instead of genuine humility, you have at best a humble brag. Mm-hmm. You know, I built this temple for you. I built this place for you. I built that for you. And so that's the part about it that I think is, um, it. you know, if, if there's a lesson for us in the life of Solomon as it applies to, you know, leaders within the church or, or frankly, just leaders within society becoming larger than their role to some extent, become, or, or it's this thing that when the humility is gone – that's where that's when the disaster is looming and we've talked about that so many times you've said humility is the foundation and the gateway for all christian virtue and a hundred percent you're right on that Mm -hmm. when the humility is gone nothing is going to go right yep you're absolutely right i mean you think about like god blessing solomon's socks off just a blessing after blessing after blessing and you think oh this guy is highly favored and there's something about the fallen nature of man that just cannot handle that. Right. You know, and, and glory, yes, because you're not going to have sin. You'll, you'll be blessed far beyond Solomon, but you'll be able to handle it. You'll recognize to whom owes you owe all glory for everything you have. And this world, you can't do that. And the crazy thing is, is when the Lord comes down in flesh, he sets aside all of this. Right for this, he became poor so that we might become rich. You don't see that ethic working in Solomon. Like, you know, in the, in the next chapter, you're going to find just how much gold and how wealthy he was. And you know, at no point in there do you see. And Solomon took this, you know, 420 talents of gold and searched the land and in search of those that were poor. And right, <laughs> no, 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 no. He builds bigger palaces and he builds cities for himself and he does. You know, so think how much greater a steward the Lord is than Solomon. Yeah, so, I, I was doing a little math on that, Sam. 420 talents of gold is nearly 16 tons of gold. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> that's a lot of gold. So, yeah, talent. I mean, do the math. 420 talents, that's 75 pounds is a talent, 16 ounces and a pound, and every ounce goes for $2,000. So by yeah. the time you get <laughs> figure that out, it's like a billion-dollar income a year. And rather than using that to lift up other people, Solomon's like, look how blessed I am. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So so going through the prayer and, and picking out a couple of verses that really stuck out to me, mm-hmm. um, one of the ones that stuck out to me that really just jumped to me right away was verse 46, where Solomon says, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. And you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive, those enemies, in case you were wondering, Lord, not the other enemies, but those when... And pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen. And oh, by the way, the house that I have built for your name, then here in heaven, get your, that in there. 
You got to get that in there. Then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they may have compassion. This is all one sentence, by the way. And they may have compassion on them. That's why I haven't stopped. For they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Wow. He's getting on his inner Paul here. Wow. That is a long sentence. That was one sentence. My goodness. Um, but it but it starts off at an interesting place with me, which is, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. So he's basically saying, when we sin against you. <laughs> it's like, yeah. this definitely is going to happen. And to some extent, I just... Again, this kind of comes back to I don't what context this was. We were talking judges. We were talking about in judges, where the, we kept saying, and the people again did evil in the sight of the Lord, and boom, they'd get you know oppressed again, and they'd need another judge. Mm-hmm. In a situation like this, I feel like Solomon's saying, "Look, I see this coming. We're going to do this when this happens, Lord." And I'm like, "If you see it coming, if you know it's going to happen." <laughs> Why do you let yourself get that far with it? You know, um, at some point, don't you kind of have to ask that question? It's like you see so clearly that you're going to do this. Why do you let it happen? You know, why do the people continue to do evil in the sight of the Lord? And I don't know. I ask that question of myself. I have to, you know, I look at myself <laughs> sometimes. and I'm like, really? Again, we're doing this again you know, it's like you didn't learn last time. We're we're here again. You know, that sort of thing. I, I don't know what it is about us, man. We just don't learn. And here he sees it coming and he can't avoid the train wreck. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me, you know, because this is so if you were an exile of Israel who's living in Babylon, because he's pointing to the day, you know, in 586. So let's say Solomon is writing this in around 930 B.C., and in 586, so a few centuries later, in 586 BC, the Babylonians come, they tear down the temple, they destroy Jerusalem, they take everybody into exile. It's all the things that Solomon is describing right here. Yep. You would have been super grateful for this prayer and the Lord's response. That would have been a super hope-giving um, interaction because you're reading it and you're like, hey, this has just happened to us. Mm-hmm. And Solomon is pleading for the Lord's mercy on the day that that happens and if you were in exile, that would have made that, that would have been so comforting to know that the Lord responds and and does vow that kind of mercy. Um, but His holiness won't be mocked. There's one of the, my favorite things, and I, I learned this from Doctor Gage, is if you take the entire major story of the people of Israel over fourteen hundred years from from the days of Abraham to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Follow what happens here. So they start off in Babylon. So Abram's born in the city of Ur, which is in Babylon. And they come over into the promised land and eventually they go down and they're going to be enslaved by foreigners. And Moses is raised up to deliver them. And so Joshua leads them through the Jordan, you know, through the, through the Jordan into the land. Mm-hmm. And he and the judges lead the conquest. They conquer the promised land. David then comes along, sets Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Solomon builds this grand temple. And up to that point in 586, centuries have passed where somebody from the line of King David is reigning on the throne in Jerusalem. And then God sends prophets and says, I can't bear 
this wickedness and the way that you defile my name, the way you defile my temple, the way that you treat the poor, the way that you're shedding blood. They were sacrificing kids to pagan gods. I mean, really wicked. And so God departs from the temple. In that moment, when God departed from the temple, remember, everything leading to that moment has been 1,400 years of God's protection and faithfulness. And God unravels all 1,400 years in a matter of days. And so, in a moment, the line of King David is no longer reigning in Jerusalem. Solomon's temple that was built is utterly destroyed. The city that David founded is reduced to ashes. The promised land that Joshua and the judges had conquered is once again under foreign control. The Israelites that came through the Jordan with Joshua are now led out of the Jordan, out of the land. They Mm -hmm. once again become captives of foreigners like they were in the days of Egypt. And where are they taken into exile? To the very place that Abraham was called out of, back to Babylon. And it's just fascinating that 1,400 years of God's faithfulness and God says, okay, I'm departing. I'm going to let you learn your lesson here. And in days that kind of assault against God's holiness unravels 1,400 years of covenant faithfulness so that they learn a lesson. But it, it just goes to show, man, God will not be mocked. Like, he will bring consequences on you that make you learn these hard lessons. And for, you know, 70 years, almost 100 years, you, you have these people that are off in exile learning very hard lessons. When you look at the Old Testament, a lot of the times where you read about the Israelites in in the Babylonian captivity, for example, um, or you just read about the things that happened to them and you think, wow, you know, it's like I thought these were supposed to be God's people. You know, like he was, you know, the fascinating thing about that is, and this is a little bit of a rant here. But I love the fact that God takes his people, plants them in Babylon, and he doesn't say, now you just sit there and suffer. You know, take my punishment and, you know, be sad. You know, he says, no, no, no. When you go to Babylon, I want you to plant gardens. I want you to to have families. I want you to enrich the city. I want you to pray for Babylon. I want you, even though this is a punishment that you've been taken from Jerusalem and transplanted into Babylon, I want you to be there to bless those people. And one of the things that we don't know just because of modern-day demographics, when the early church explodes all over the world, there were more Christians to the east in the early centuries before Islam spread. There were more Christians to the east in the areas of Iran and Iraq and all over there than there were to the west going toward where Paul's missionary journeys went. And you know, how did that happen? Well, it was because there was a vibrant community of Jews and synagogues that went and spread all over that area um, and, and persisted even to Jesus's days. There were a lot of apostles who went to the east and to that region and were legacy, you know, the legacy of these exiles mm-hmm. that were ready to receive the gospel because they'd been sitting there teaching the Old Testament prophecies in these synagogues for so long. And so God didn't waste this exile. He doesn't you know, send them off and say, go sit in your room for no reason. He's using even the exile to prepare the land for the immersion of the gospel. Because when the apostles venture out all over the world, where do they go? They went to the synagogues that had been planted by the, by the ancestors, uh, the descendants of those who were in exile. And so it's like God's sovereignty is just wonderful. He doesn't waste any of the suffering. 
Well, and, um, you know, the, the verse that's so famous, uh, I guess, Jeremiah uh, 29, uh, 7, seek the welfare of the city, mm-hmm. says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into mm-hmm. exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. But I like that where I have sent you mm-hmm. into exile. So when you find yourself in those, quote unquote, random circumstances, Remember <laughs> that, you know, one of the one of the parts of sovereignty of understanding that God is sovereign is understanding that we are where he wants us to be. Mm-hmm. And if we find ourselves in an uncomfortable or a very difficult situation, he's placed us there. Mm-hmm. He's put yeah. us there. And his call to us is always going to be the same, that we seek him and that we follow him and, that you know, and that we should be a blessing to our circumstances wherever we are. Mm-hmm. And what we may see as persecution, God might be ordaining as a mission trip. (laughs) Absolutely is, which is an uncomfortable thing to consider, especially in a Western church that is Mm -hmm. addicted to its own comfort. Mm -hmm. And and Sam, I'm putting my hand up right at the front of that line. Me too. I am totally Totally. addicted to, to my own comfort. I do not like being uncomfortable. But I'm just saying, folks, if you can't see that, if you can't see how addicted the Western church is to having everything be easy and comfortable, man, I don't know, you know, we need to, we need to have a chat about your vision here or something because we are addicted to that. And so, you know, that's, <laughs> it is especially for us, it is a difficult thing to think that, you know, when we find ourselves perhaps heading toward a time where we aren't the alpha culture. Well, Hmm. you know, God's going to, maybe God's not going to send us into exile. Maybe God's going to wrap us up in an an exile where we are. You know, maybe there's going to be a culture that ascends that we have to sort of live in exile right where we were to start with. Um, I don't know, you know, but it's uncomfortable to think that he might. And yet that's his prerogative. Um, It's one of those questions where, like, I was talking to somebody, I'm, I'm running through a series with some of the faculty about some of the early conversions in the church through mm-hmm. Acts. Yep. And it's fascinating. You know, Jesus, out of the gates, he gives this command to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the way that he puts it is, you know, you're going to be my apostles, and you basically start the church in Jerusalem, then you go to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And what do they do? They don't go anywhere. <laughs> you know, they, they sit, they're comfortable. And it's when... Acts chapter 7 comes along, and they start putting people to death. It's the, the first martyr, Stephen. He is put to death. And, you know, the Apostle Paul there is approving the execution. And chapter 8, right after the stoning of Stephen, starts this way. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So when do they get obedient to go to Judea and Samaria? <laughs> right after <laughs> there's a great persecution of the church. That's yes. right. It's like, all right, we're going to get moving now. Yeah. And, and God uses that persecution to advance his kingdom. It's like the judo move. The mm-hmm. world pushes against his kingdom, and his kingdom uses it against the world to overcome the world. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating. He does that again and again all throughout the scriptures and in our own times. Yeah. 
Um, so here we have, uh, then Solomon gets into the benediction. After the prayer, he gets into this benediction. And the benediction is actually kind of cool. Um, you know, there's things that I sort of pick on during the prayer. Like I was kind of picking on the house that I have built, house that I have built, house that I have built. When you get into the benediction, this is actually some really straight on stuff. I mean, um, especially this one part. And this is something that uh, that you were reading or, or brought up beforehand when we were talking about what we were going to talk about today. And he gets in here and he says, verse 57, the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine with which I have pleaded before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires so that that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, that there is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at that day. That's beautiful. I mean, that's just like you could that'll preach anywhere on any Sunday morning. And, and it's and it's awesome theology. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that's, that's interesting about that is he says, may he, or that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all of his ways and keep his commandments. And there's a recognition in Solomon that, Lord, unless you do the work, unless you prompt us, we are so self selfish and self-absorbed, we'll never follow you unless you first incline our hearts to walk in your ways. Um, and that's there's a recognition in this in this benediction that we are too weak. You have to do it. You need to move. We won't move on our own. Um, and so he's anticipating, you know, the whole prayer prior to this is, you know, we're going to turn from you, God. Like, let's just go ahead and get that out of the way. <laughs> you know, we're, it's, it's going to happen. And that's, and in some cases, we're going to get calamities like famines or whatever as punishment. And in other cases, we're going to bring it on ourselves just by our stupidity. But in either case, Lord, please don't turn away from us. Like, we need you because we know, even in our arrogance, even in our, like, we're determined to sin, we can't stop sinning, but we know that if you ever walk away from us, we're done. Mm. And and so, like, in that sense, Solomon gets it. Um, he, spot on, spot on mm-hmm. theologian, you know, with a great benediction here. Um well, and, as, you know, it was right at the end of the prayer where he said, when we sin against you, for there is no one that does not sin. It's like his, you know, we were again, we were talking earlier about Solomon sort of being the picture of the celebrity pastor, celebrity leader kind of. But his theology was pretty good. Mm-hmm. I mean, he yeah. knew what was right. He certainly did. You, you you listen to a prayer and a benediction like this where it's like, dude, you PCA ordination on the way. Like, exactly. you, know, <laughs> you know, this is this is awesome and really wonderful. And then you see right around the corner that he's building shrines to pagan gods and I mean brazenly and marrying all these women and and doing things that you're like, all right, which which Solomon are you? Like that was a really good Solomon, the one who got up on the stage and raised his hands and you know, was praising God. And, and I have to believe, by the way, that that was sincere. You know, yes. it's like we, we can't make him into a one-dimensional character where he's right. either totally saint or totally sinner. Like, he's like all of us. We're a combination of the two. There's times where, man, I'm raising my hands and praying to God with 
earnest and sincere fervor. And, you know, a day later, if you could get into my heart, you'd spit in my face. Like, you know, we're, we're both, but you just, you see Solomon and you expect so much more and he fails spectacularly to live up to expectations. Um, sad. I mean, it's, this prayer is beautiful. It is. Even even though it's laced with a, a lot of reminders that he built the house, it is still a beautiful prayer. I mean, it really is. Yeah. Um, and I think we pick on him, honestly. You know, and I'm, I'm going to throw the name out there, which I probably shouldn't. But it's like, because you expect so much from him, you know, he's he's got so much going for him. And he's got such a powerful platform for ministry that when he fails, it's like, oh, how did, how how could he fail? But there were hints all along the way. You know, the same was my reaction when, when Robbie Zacharias, when news came out of his fall, it was like, man, I love that guy. Like, right. I mean, he he discipled me on the radio. His, I, his podcast was one of a few that I regularly listened to, and he just seemed so beyond reproach mm-hmm. and when you see that moment where you know like like solomon you know his his benedictions and his prayers and his podcasts and his sermons i mean he was saying all the right things and his heart you know seemed to be absolutely sincere and then you you hear of the things that are being done <laughs> outside of those venues and you're like how could this be the same guy yeah. like w- was it him yeah. Did he believe those things? Did he? Was it just a farce? Was it a root? Like, how do I make sense of this? And you know, it's. I think it all comes back down to what you said a minute ago. It's if it has to be humility, right? You know, I think those platforms of mankind is apart from Christ is just not capable of bearing them well. Yeah, I think there's very few um, that can have a national platform without it destroying them i learned i can't i can't handle being in leadership of a small christian school (laughs) you know i have no business being in any kind of national spotlight for sure it would destroy me um and i i hope you know i'd I'd much rather prefer to be near to the lord and authentic weakness and humility leaning upon his grace than to be have him bless my socks off to a point where i can't handle it that's a you know that's just a that's a tough situation because there were all kinds of things I think that people should have seen that were trouble signs and and they didn't and you know the church needs to own that the church it, you know in general the big bigger mm-hmm. picture we need to own the fact that we don't do as good a job policing but then also upholding and restoring our own some of these things don't have to go so far off the rails as they do because everything is kept hidden. I think I've probably said this to you, but I know, I know I've said it to Pastor Tom, who's who's my boss. That if you like, just if you ever see the beginnings of that kind of corrosion, like you you hear the flutes that are off key, you know, in my life, kick me in the head before I get there. Yeah, like please catch it early, confront me early, do whatever you have to do to knock sense into me. And you know that's that's the idea, by the way, of biblical love. Because we live in that we live in a society now that says, "Oh, don't judge and don't judge and whatever works for you and float your boat and whatever." But the idea of biblical love, like the second greatest commandment, when Jesus is asked what are the what's the greatest commandment, and he responds, "The first is you know to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, 
And then he says the second is like it. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. And what he's, he's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Leviticus chapter 19, uh, verse 18. And in that passage, the context is, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. In other words, you shall rebuke him, lest you incur sin because of him. And then it goes on, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Like, so the idea behind that is if you're allowing me to continue, that doesn't mean that you beat me in the head with a hammer or kick me, like I said, but you confront me. Like, if you love me, you don't let me go down the road that's going to destroy my life or my marriage or my family or my ministry. Like, you confront me if you love me. And as a church, we got to get better about, one, knowing one another. Like, if I'm living in a silo and I'm not in community and nobody knows me, I'm doing Christianity all by myself, no, that is, that is not the way this works. Like, you need people around you who love you enough to call you to something better. I am not, I will not let that go. If there's, if I pick up on something like that, you and I are going to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. If I see something, I'm saying something. Uh, um, and that's a mercy, I think, to the leaders. Yeah, and that there's a trap when you're in leadership, and it doesn't. You don't have to be a pastor, right? You know, it's just if you're if you're worried about your reputation or whatever it might be, where you know you look at some of these mega pastors and you wonder, like, in your moment where you get real with the Lord, like, does this does this frighten you um, that you're walking in the struggle and you're doing it alone and you're having to conceal it and hide it and you know nobody can possibly know, and so you take all kinds of extraordinary steps to make sure that nobody can know that you're broken. And if you ever reach a point in your life where your ministry or whatever is requiring you to lie and conceal, um, you're, you're enslaved, you know, absolutely yes. enslaved. And so yeah. one of the most important things that you can do in ministry, whether you're a pastor or lay leader or, you know, whatever, wherever you're at in ministry, is you've got, you have to have the freedom to let people know that you have clay feet. You know, I, I don't, you know, I can't imagine what life would be like if people put me on a pedestal. Thankfully, they don't. <laughs> but, you know, being on a pedestal, they don't, they don't give you the freedom to be broken. There's no yeah. human being on this planet that's not broken. But if you say to me, and, and you might not intend for it, but if you say to me, because you're putting me on a pedestal, oh my goodness, you are so precious to me because of who I think you are then I've got to put up in that show. like, And it's out of a sense of duty and love. I can't let these people know that I struggle with this or that or I have this addiction or that addiction or, or whatever. Like, I, if, if I feel enslaved to keep up an image for the sake of ministry, then I'm going to live a double life. I'm going yeah. to show you what you want to see. And then over here, I'm going to build a private life that's hidden. And you see it happen again and again and again. And it's tragic in ministry. So the worst thing you can do for your pastor is put them on a pedestal that they can't possibly live up to. Mm. So then we come to the end of chapter eight. And and after that benediction, we have the conclusion, the feast, the big party that they throw. And, you know, one of the things that you and I have been talking about with respect to Ravi, because I think it's a question that's on people's minds a lot, is – you know, this guy had a big impact on my life. You know, he, he meant something to me. I, I grew closer to the Lord because, and then he has fallen. And what do I do with that? How do I understand that? How do I, do I, do I have to feel ashamed at, and I think the answer of it, cause we're, we've been setting up the comparison, Sam, between like a Solomon and, and a celebrity that fell like Ravi is mm-hmm. here at the end. 
Because at the end of all of this, yeah, maybe Solomon wasn't the most sincere guy. Maybe Solomon had a heart problem they couldn't see. Maybe there was something going on that was going to come to light later on. But the fact was that at the end of all of this, the people were still ministered to by the Lord. It's like they still Mm -hmm. understood that they were receiving something from God Mm -hmm. through him. I don't don't have any major thing to confess right now, but I'll say if I ever do stumble— if I, you know, any ministry that I've ever done is the Lord working through me. You know, it's not it's not my words, it's not your words, it's the Lord who works through broken vessels. Mm-hmm. And here at the end, it says, at the end of this, they blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that who? That the, the Lord, Lord yeah. had shown to David, his servant, and to Israel, his people. And yeah. so... You know, at this at this conclusion, you have the Lord who's being faithful to a covenant to his chosen king, David. And because of God's delight in David, he shares that delight with all of the people, even once David is gone, right? He shares it with the son of David. He shares it with all of the people of Israel. And now, in our circumstance, right, in, in our situation, now we go home joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord has shown to Christ, his servant mm-hmm. and to the church, his people. Right. Like it's because of Christ's relationship with God as, as our head that now all that blessing, all that gladness of heart and, and goodness of the Lord now pours out on us because mm-hmm. God is keeping a covenant that Jesus fulfilled on our behalf. The fact that the blessings and the benefits pour out from cracked vessels doesn't mean that they're not actually blessings and benefits. Right. If it's God that spoke to you through someone's ministry and that someone falls, it is still God that spoke to you through that person's ministry. He, God, his, God uses people who are, like you say, cleats of, uh, cleats of flay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, God hey, uses to- people that have feet of clay. Yeah. Or would you rather that I leave it as cleats of flay? <laughs> I, I kind of like cleats of clay. Wait, cleats I can't of even flay. say it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's uh, good stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I remember I used to wonder, like, Jesus, when he chooses Judas and empowers Judas and gives him authority to go cast out demons, like, you got to think that there were people who came to authentic faith in Jesus through the ministry of Judas. You know, or at least I suspect. And, you know, the Lord still empowered him to do ministry. Yeah. You know, Jesus authorized him to do it, knowing that he was going to have a colossal fall. And yet anybody who came to faith in Christ, even through the ministry of Judas, is no less saved. Right. I think that's a good word, especially as we look at the celebrity king Solomon and we think about the celebrity Christians that have that have fallen, we don't excuse what they do. But neither do we forget that they were they were an a, an agent, a tool, a, a something that God used. You know, they were part of God's plan for us. If what you received was from the Lord and it was real from the Lord, it doesn't matter that it was given to you by somebody who was flawed and who fell. Um, it's just, I, I really, I know there's people, Sam, that are hurting that, that wonder how they should feel about it. And I just, I would love to say to them, take it as from the Lord and don't feel ashamed. You know, the reality is that if the only words you could receive 
had to come by those that were worthy to give them, you'd receive no words. That is exactly right. That is exactly right. You know, <laughs> that is 100% true. Well, why don't we let that stand as our last word on this subject, which has, interestingly enough, this has, this conversation ended in a very different place than I thought it would. I'm very happy with how it went, because I think that was really good in our modern, in our, in our moment, in our contemporary setting, Sam. I was, I was glad how it went, but I'll tell you, it wasn't how I thought we were going to spool this out, and yet I think it fits, and I'm, <laughs> and I feel good about it. You know, I feel like it was really something that, uh, there's somebody out there that's going to hear this that thinks, I this I've been thinking about this. I needed to hear this today. So I don't know who that is, <laughs> but if you're that person and you hear this and you think, man, those guys were talking about how I feel about something that's going on, whether it's Ravi or something similar to that, um, we'd love to hear from you. You know, just tell us. Uh, we'd love to love for you to reach out to us. Our email address is out of water at Rio Vista That's R I O. VistaChurch.com, uh, where you can also go to our website at RioVistaChurch.com slash out of water and catch up on all the back episodes of our podcast. Uh, you can also get it on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, or on Spotify, or through our Rio Vista Church smartphone app. Sam and I will be back next week with more in Desiring the Kingdom and First Kings chapter 9, which is very cool also. And we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.